G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. But our special guest helps people make sense of the world and how we might interact with people who don't think like us. We're going to be talking about the Bible, our culture and the challenging issues we face both here in Australia and really throughout the entire Western world. Christopher Watkins says it's not enough for Christians to explain the Bible to our Australian culture. We must also explain the culture in which we live. In other words, remaining biblically faithful and becoming culturally sensitive. Christopher Watkins is about to release his latest book. It's called Biblical Critical Theory, in which he exposes and evaluates the often hidden assumptions and concepts that shape today's thinking. He looks at them through the lens of the biblical narrative running from Genesis to Revelation and asking urgent questions like how does the Bible's storyline help us understand our society, our culture and ourselves? Associate Professor Christopher Watkin lectures in European languages at Monash University. His research interests, these are interesting, Themes of religion, atheism and the secular in philosophy and literature. Chris, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. It's great to be here. Uh, Chris, uh, Christians and our culture, uh, remaining biblically faithful, becoming culturally sensitive. I guess a lot of people don't even think about why others think differently to what we might think as a Christian. How do you describe the way people think differently? That's a really interesting question, isn't it, Neil? I, I think you're right. Most of us, you know, we just go through life living day to day, don't we? You know, we don't think, how do I view the world? You know, what do I think a human being is? But, you know, the thing is, we've all got answers to those questions even if we just assume them, even if we couldn't, you know, say what they are out loud. Because, you know, when you get out of bed in the morning, you've got to do something. You've got to make choices. And the choices that we make reveal the sort of people we think we are and the sort of world we think we live in. In some sense here, uh, our identity is important because it's who we're identifying or what we're identifying with that often shapes the way we think. How do you describe the shaping process that happens to all of us? Uh, and yet, when we talk about being a Christian, uh, we tend to begin to think differently. How do you think about those shaping, uh, yeah, those shaping influences? I think everything in society around us shapes us, makes us into certain sorts of people with certain sorts of desires and certain sorts of fears. If you think about how many adverts you see in an average day, you know, out in the city, on your phone, on screens all around you, all of those are shaping you. They're all telling you what to look for in life, what the good life is and what you should desire. And so society is doing an incredibly effective job of shaping us into certain sorts of people. But I guess as Christians, we also want to be shaped by the Bible, 
by God's word. And when we immerse ourselves in it and think and pray through the Bible, it's doing the same sort of thing. It's teaching us what's important in life, what, what sort of things we should be looking for to desire and what sort of things we should be uh, fleeing away from in life. Now, I mentioned in our introduction, you're an academic, you're a lecturer at university in the Monash University, and and you've got some favorite French philosophers, uh, some that are very, you know, secularist, uh, uh, even, uh, you know, even some of the, the sorts of things we might even be really concerned about. But you're interpreting those things. Uh, is this something that ordinary people ought to be aware of, because do you have to go to university to understand the way that people think differently? How do you try and interpret that for, uh, say, you know, ordinary listeners listening to a conversation today, but they've never been to university, but they want to know why people think differently? I find Paul's image of the body uh, a really wonderful help with things like this. Um, you know, so his idea is that the, the Christian church is a body and there's lots of different parts of it and they're not all the same. Um, and so, you know, down in my little academic neck of the woods, reading all these French philosophers, you might, th- you might think of me as a toenail. You know, there I am part of the body doing my job, um, but I'm not the whole body. So not everybody needs to go away and read, you know, people like Derrida and Foucault. Um, other people in the body do do things that academics could never do. Um, and it's working together that we're the body of Christ. So I've, I've got my little thing. I'm a little bit of the body, but there's lots of other bits too. Let's just squeeze in a thought or two about this other dimension that I mentioned in our uh, introduction. Sometimes as a Christian believer, we say, well, we've got a message. We just got to deliver that and leave it to everyone else to interpret it. But you're saying in some sense here We've got to be able to even let people know the sort of culture that they are in. So even helping people understand the way they think that they do so that they can actually receive and appreciate the sorts of things we might talk about from the Bible. I think you're right, Neil. I think that's the biblical model as well. If you look at the way that Paul goes about trying to speak about Jesus to different people, he, he speaks really differently to Jews than the way he speaks to, to pagans who've, who've got no Jewish background at all. You know, he says, I, I tried to become all things to all people so that I might win some. And he really tries to get under the skin of the cultures that he's speaking to. You know, think of Acts 17, where he's addressing all those philosophers on Mars Hill, and he talks to them about their own culture as a way to, to introduce the biblical gospel to them. So I think there's a biblical pattern that we're trying to follow here. Now, when we're bringing a word from the Bible, uh, even understanding the biblical narrative, as we're going to talk about today, you know, Genesis through Revelation, understanding something of the bigger thinking that God has, sometimes we think that, you know, people who are intelligent and they've got all sorts of degrees and uh, that somehow or other their wisdom is way, way advanced on where I might be, uh, bringing my message in there, even as the Bible says, sometimes uh, looks like foolishness compared to the wise, uh, educated people of our time. Is there something from Scripture we can draw some attention to that gives us some insight into how our message of the gospel actually is very, very powerful. One of the brilliant things about the gospel, and this really sets it apart, I think, from a lot of the ideologies of our age, is that you you don't need to be massively educated to, to grasp its fullness. 
um, you know, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. There's something about receiving a free gift that they understand that adults find it really hard to understand. And so, you know, a, a, a seven-year-old who's a Christian is a proper Christian. They're not just, you know, a baby Christian or a halfway Christian. And yet there are depths and riches in the gospel message that it, even some sort of towering genius like Augustine can seek to plumb the depths of all his life and never get to the bottom of. And that's really unusual. If you look at all the different ideologies and ways of looking at the world, that there's usually a bar that you've got to get up to, an intellectual bar to grasp them. It's really not the case with the gospel. And that's that's one of the, the delights of being a Christian, that someone with a, a, a mental disability, for example, or, or a, a person beginning to suffer from uh, memory loss, or a little child can be a full Christian in, in the Rich, full richness of that word, and yet the greatest minds in the history of the world have only just begun to scratch the surface of, of the wonders of God's wisdom. So a simple message. Uh, there's something profound in this, isn't there? That the message of the gospel, you know, that Christ died, that he rose again, uh, that he has paid the price for our sins. The simple message of the gospel, how we respond to that linking in our belief with God, that makes a huge difference. And it really is, is what you're saying here, Chris, cuts across cultures, cuts across age differences. It really is the universal message that can be understood by everyone. I think that's right. And I think, again, Paul shows you how this one unchanging, glorious gospel message is preach differently in different cultural contexts so that the gospel doesn't change but when he's speaking to a jewish audience he uses different images and, and different background to explain it to, to when he's speaking to a pagan audience and so you know in our, our own age we shouldn't expect say sub-saharan african christianity to look exactly like western christianity and that's one of the glorious things about the gospel the unchanging gospel finds its home in every human culture and I know you've got a, a favourite passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I wonder if you can describe just how important, if listeners were going to their Bible right now and finding 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what they might discover there about the way we communicate, the way we're perceived, the way we think differently. If listeners are going to 1 Corinthians 1 at the moment, they, they should fasten, fasten their seatbelts because they're in for a brilliant ride. Paul does something amazing in this passage. You remember that it's the passage where he identifies two major cultural values in the world around him. He says, uh, Jews look for miraculous signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And then he does two things with those values. And it's the combination of the two that's brilliant. First of all, he, he sets the cross of Christ in um, opposition to those two values. He says, Greeks look for wisdom, but the cross of Christ is foolishness. And he says, Jews look for miraculous signs, and what, what they want is, is power. They want a manifestation of God's power. But he says the cross is weakness. And if that was all he was doing, you'd think, well, you know, the, the gospel and the culture are just like oil and water. They never mix. But he doesn't just do that. He goes on a few verses later to say that the foolishness of God in the cross is actually wiser than human wisdom. So he's like comparing the two and he's saying, if you really want wisdom, if you want the fullness, the richness of wisdom, you actually need to go to the cross because there you're going to find a, a wisdom, the depth of which that the Greeks searching for their wisdom haven't even begun to comprehend. And so God's foolishness 
and God's weakness are both the opposite of what people in the world think they're looking for and actually the fullness of what people in the world are looking for. And the reason that that's so brilliant is that I think we tend to do one of those or the other. So there are some Christians today who say we must show that the gospel is different to the world. We, we must put clear blue water between the culture and the gospel. And that's like Paul saying God's wisdom is foolishness. You know, they're different. And some Christians say, oh, you know, we've got to get alongside culture and we've got to show how we're relevant. And that's how, like Paul saying, the, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. But actually, he shows that we need both of those. The gospel is both the opposite of what the culture is looking for and the deepest, richest fulfillment of what the gospel is looking for. And that's why that's one of my favorite passages. It's just brilliant how he does that. Well, I'll encourage listeners to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, even while we're talking here, you could be reading that. And uh, as you say, uh, Chris, you know, get blown away by uh, the, the wonderful uh, exciting and intentional way that God actually uh, did, you know, differentiates uh, the wisdom of this world from the wisdom of the cross. It's a little bit like if you think you're an intelligent person, come to the cross, you ain't seen nothing yet. The cross actually, it is the central element of our Christian faith and uh, really coming to this uh, area of communication of how we actually communicate to people who think differently, the cross actually is very powerful in this area. It cuts across. Now, if you're trying to show how the Bible and its unfolding story help us to make sense of modern life and culture, where do you like to start? I think that a great place to start is to do a Bible overview. That was, that was where the penny really dropped for me. That was when I began the journey that, that led to writing this book. So when I was a really young Christian, I sort of had an idea that the Bible was a collection of really important stories, or, or it might even have been like the history of a nation. But it was only really when I did a Bible overview that I saw, oh my goodness, the Bible is, from the first page to the last, one coherent, unfolding story, complex stories, many layers, but it's one story of reality. And it's not just a story within reality, it's the story of reality in which you can live that makes sense of everything and it was like walking into a whole new world um, it was we've got a little uh, we had a little boy um, he was about three at the time I started writing this and he would love to bang a pan with a wooden spoon over and over and over again and it was like going from a world in which that's your picture of music like you know that's the, the best that music ever gets to suddenly being given tickets for a symphony orchestra and walking into a concert hall and thinking, oh, my goodness, music is so much richer than I'd ever imagined. And it was like the Bible is so much richer than I'd ever thought it was because it is this one unfolding story. And so I'd begin with doing a Bible overview. There's, there's lots of brilliant Bible overviews out there. Uh, Mike Rater down here in Melbourne has got one with Ridley College. If you hop on uh, Nancy Guthrie's website, she's got some brilliant Bible overview material on there. Vaughan Roberts, God's Big Picture. Um, give yourself a Bible overview. Uh, dive in and have fun. Well, a way to talk about uh, humanity, uh, the description of humanity, as you say, God has his dealings 
with humanity, uh, even with the raising up of a nation. And then, of course, uh, with Jesus' arrival, uh, that very first Christmas, the incarnation and God's uh, plan that he's outworking throughout uh, all of the history of the world. That's another dimension uh, for another day, perhaps. But, uh, but the fact that there is an historic overview that you can take from Genesis through Revelation, this is something that some people don't appreciate about what the Bible gives to us. And it's so incredibly rich, Neil, isn't it? I, I, I don't know how it was for you when you first discovered that, that the Bible actually sets out this, this whole vision of the world in the form of a story. But I think it's transformative. It certainly was for me in my own Christian walk. And if, I guess if any of your listeners haven't done a Bible overview yet, I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Associate Professor Christopher Watkin is our guest. Christopher, in this part of our conversation, I wonder if we're talking about those things that are shaping people's thinking, uh, the secular world. What is it, do you think, if you can put your finger on some simple priorities to talk about here, what is it that's shaping people's thinking? Because a lot of people will say all sorts of things look like they've gone haywire. People don't think the way they used to. I think that's certainly right, isn't it, Neil? Um, People keep... Societies keep changing, not just in our own century, but in the past as well. Look, I, I think if I had to boil it down, I'd say a lot of the ideas that, that are being used to attack Christians today are actually Christian ideas, mm. ideas of freedom and emancipation and equality are largely ideas that Christians have introduced into the culture over the centuries. Um, and these are the ideas now that are being used to, to sort of beat Christians over the head in public. And I think that's a really strange position for Christians to find themselves in. So Christians have been a, a persecuted minority in the past, in the Roman, late Roman world, you know, with Nero burning Christians and in the Colosseum, that sort of thing. But, but the ideology of Rome was not really influenced by Christianity at all. And then for the longest time, Christians sort of had a dominant position in society. You know, think of the medieval world. You know, the church was really powerful. And now that power is receding and that that dominance is waning away. And Christians, you know, to use Steve McAlpine's phrase, are becoming the bad guys again. But the reason that we're the bad guys now is that Christian ideas are being used to attack Christians you know, we're against freedom, we're against equality. And those ideas were brought in by Christians. And that's a weird situation for Christians to find themselves in. So when we talk this issue of freedom, and I know this is a special interest of yours too, uh, the Christian idea of freedom, because as you say, going back to those early centuries, Christians were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Freedom was not something that Christians had. And uh, things began to develop in such a way that Christianity came into a more sharp contrast with the cruelty of the Roman Empire and freedom became an issue there. So it became, as a Christian idea, as you say, these things being used against us now. So it really comes down to definitions of the words that we use. And uh, there'd be an awful lot of philosophers who've taken issue with uh, the way that we int- the way we use words and uh, I think it's Der- Derrida the uh, the philosopher who really was very much a, a part of uh, you know saying that words don't that words have meaning as you want them to have meaning and they're used ultimately in a political way 
Any thoughts here about freedom and and how these things are being just uh, used against us uh, even more? Absolutely. So if you ask most people today what freedom means, I, I guess they'd say something like it means not to have any constraints on you, you know, to be able to do what you want. If I want to go a certain place or, or, or be a certain way that I'm, I'm free to do that. And that's what a philosopher called Isaiah Berlin called negative freedom, um, freedom from everything, all, all the things that might hem me in. But it's not, interestingly, it's not the biblical idea of freedom. And the biblical idea of freedom comes from the exodus, that, that huge sort of um, defining story of the Old Testament where, where Moses leads the people of Israel across the Red Sea and out of slavery in Egypt. And it's really interesting to see how the modern world has picked up the language of the Exodus to talk about its idea of freedom. So Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement in the, the U.S. in the mid 20th century uh, used this language of Moses, let my people go. And that language has been used over and over again in the modern world. But if you look at that language in Exodus, it's used seven times in the book of Exodus. And every single time it's followed by something like that they may worship me. Let my people go that they may worship me. And I think that's really hard for the modern world to wrap its head around. Because so the modern world here is let my people go and they think wonderful freedom from constraint. That's exactly what we want. And then and then they hear that they may worship me. And they say, oh, no, here's Christians being oppressive again. But actually, I think that the Bible hits on something that's true of every sort of freedom here, but that the modern world finds it really, really hard to admit, which is that freedom in one area comes through constraint in another area. And think about it this way. I can't both eat a pizza every day for lunch and dinner and then win the Wimbledon tennis tournament or win the Australian Open. I can do one of those. But if I eat lots of pizza, I'm not going to be fit enough to win the Open. And if I win the Open, then I can't eat lots of pizza. So I can be free to eat pizza or I can be free to win the Open. But I can't be free to do both. I've got to constrain my appetite for pizza or I've got to constrain my desire to be a brilliant tennis player. And I can only be free in one of those areas by constraining the other. And that's that's the way that all freedom works. So I can follow my reason. I can live life reasonably. But if I do that, I've got to park my impulses and desires and emotions once in a while. Or I can let myself be guided by my desires all the time. But if I do that, I've got to park my reason. So I can only be free in one area by constraining another area. And, and the Bible understands that. But I think the modern world finds it really hard to understand that because it's got this idea of we should just be free in every way all of the time. And, and it doesn't work like that. So as Christians, we appreciate being freed from the shackles of sin. Uh, that's what our redemption is all about, isn't it? Uh, breaking free from the shackles. And God has enabled us to do that. But then in our identifying with Christ, aligning ourselves with him, behaving the way he does, and thinking his thoughts after him, thinking the way that he does, we actually then constraining ourselves to be like him. And so there's this uh, freedom from one thing, as you say, but then there's some constraints in this other area. So the opponents, Chris, if we, if we as Christians are the ones with the true freedom, our opponents then are trying to, in some ways, um, deal with us in the interests of their own power. 
how much is power in a part of what uh, the opponents of our freedom might be uh, using against us? Power is one of those really tricky words, isn't it? It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, if we understand power in some really broad sense, as in like acting on the action of others, influencing others, then I think power is just unavoidable. Like we're all exercising that all the time. Like, you know, our conversation now going out over the airwaves is inviting people to think in particular ways and act in particular ways. It's it's sort of offering a, a particular influence. And, you know, if you switch over to a different radio station, you're, you're being you know, catechized, you're being formed in a particular way of, of looking at the world. So I think power in that sense is not just something that's in some corners of society and not elsewhere, it's something that's everywhere. And the question, therefore, is not, are you exerting power? It's what is your power serving? And and I guess that the power that, that Christians have, we're, we're pleading with people um, to... Uh, to come to a God who loves you, who died for you, who is committed to you to the point of death and beyond, and who has proved that he has your best interests at heart. And don't use your power to try and conform people to, you know, for example, um, a, a market society that's a, a rat race and, and rewards the successful but beats down the weak. Um, you know, don't use your power to to commend that to people um, or use your power to, to commend to people an, an ideology uh, that's going to dehumanize them. So everyone has power. And I think Christians should use their power to commend a God who is for us and who loves us. As Christians have power, uh, we put our faith in the all-powerful God, and uh, we know that there is power in the one who is created and the one who is, as you've been saying, uh, from Genesis through Revelation. He's fulfilling an historic mandate that he's already put in place. But if you wanted to be the opponent of Christianity, if you wanted to take down Christianity and in so doing take down the West, because we know that as we talk about Western civilization, there are some Christian foundations in there that are, are undeniable. So if you want to take down the, down the West, you've got to remove the idea of the divine. Now, Chris, you're an expert when it comes to uh, the way that atheists think, uh, the way that those opponents of this Christian view think. If they're wanting to take down the, the West, uh, removing the idea of the divine, is that the way they are trying to do that? How do you describe it? It's a really interesting question, Neil. Thank you. I think, first of all, I'd be hesitant to identify Christianity completely with the West. Um, I, I, I'd want to say that taking down the West is different to taking down Christianity. You know, the, the Bible is a, a Middle Eastern book. Augustine was a North African. Um, you know, most of the people who wrote the New Testament were, were Middle Eastern Jews. So I, I think the, the Bible is bigger than the West. And the West has a lot of problems that, that are not drawn from the Bible. Um, so I think if we're talking about how how people try to take Christianity down or, or try to take the, the Bible down, that there are two theories of this. One is that the modern world just gets rid of the divine, that there's no God anymore. The other theory is that the modern world keeps the idea of the divine. It just moves it around. So it's no longer God that's your sort of ultimate transcendent value. But for example, it's money or even sex. 
And Tim Keller's really good on this in, in his um, idea of idolatry. He, he says that we've, we've still got the divine. It's just been sort of attributed to, to other things in society. And I find that position really persuasive and really helpful. So it's not that modern people don't have any gods at all. It's that to use biblical language, that our society's gods are idols and they're, they're, they don't love you like the biblical God. Money doesn't love you. Sex doesn't love you. Power can't save you. And so we're commending people not to sort of begin believing in a God when they've not believing, been believing in anything, but to turn to the true God from idols that will destroy and dehumanize them uh, to a God who, who loves them and will make them uh, more fully human than they can ever imagine. So money, sex, power, let's add to that even science. Uh, for some, that becomes a little like their God as well. And interestingly, we're not just tucked away in a little corner because as you're indicating here, Chris, uh, shuffled off to the side, uh, moved around. Uh, we can move the divine and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take control of God sort of thing. If you're a Christian believer and you want to be able to understand what's happening to you, what's happening to your faith, what's happening to the reputation of your local church, somehow or other you've got to be able to offer a critique or in your own mind come up with some reasoning as to why these things are happening. So our biblical lens... Let's come back to the biblical lens we're looking through. How does that help us to understand all of these things that are now mounting their attack against our Christian values and our faith? I think Christians have a resource in the biblical story that is unusually acute and insightful in giving a sort of a reading and a an insight into the way that society works. And the way in which it's unusually insightful is that Christians believe that reality is a story. And put it, it's most simple. It's, it's got the moments of creation where God made the, the universe, the fall, where Adam and Eve eat the fruit and um, sin comes into the world, and then redemption, um, you know, the, the whole history of the Old Testament leading up to Christ, and then consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. So creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And what that gives to Christians, that it's actually really hard to get if you're not a Christian, is a view of reality where the way things are now is not the way they're meant to be. So I can look out at society in a, as a Christian, and I can see just in the same way that everyone else sees that this is not paradise on earth. Things are not perfect. But as a Christian, I can say I know why that is because of the fall, because of sin, mine and yours and everyone else's. And I know that it won't always be that way. I know that God has a plan to fix this. And so I can critique society, if you like, contemporary society from a point of view outside society because I see that that vision of redemption. I see what philosophers have called that standpoint of redemption. And if you don't have that Christian story, it's actually really quite hard to get that standpoint of redemption because your view of the world is, look, the way things are is just sort of the way they've always been. They change a little bit, but there are no, there's nowhere to stand outside the status quo to critique it. But Christians do have that position. And I think that gives us a, a wonderful perspective to be able to speak into the, the pain and the suffering 
of the world as it is now uh, and to cast a vision for something bigger. So if we know the God who is the creator, uh, we can have a God's eye view of what's happening. And so we can say that his view of the way humanity is, uh, is the reality view of the way humanity is. We actually stand on a much more firm foundation than all the shifting sands that are going on around us. Hey, let's take a call. 1-800-316-316. Duncan is in Norseman in WA. Hello, Duncan. Welcome. Hello. Duncan, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are this. I'm, I, I like to think that I, I live a Christian lifestyle, but I'm not religious. What I take offence to listening to your station, and frankly, it's the only station I can get down here, is you use terms like the truth as if it's your right. And no one else can use the word the truth because it's... it's I mean, look, to me, the truth is, is my truth. It's, it's what I believe in. But I think, listening to your station, that you throw the word around as if it's the absolute truth. Yep, throwing the word around as if we own it uh, because we've met the one who says, I am the truth. And so uh, there may be something special in that, but I know... Uh, that our special guest, Chris, might have a thought or two here for you, Duncan. Uh, your, your thoughts, Chris? Hi, Duncan. I think it's a, a really important question. I'm really glad that, that you brought that up. Um, and I think Christians often do come across, don't they, don't we, as, as really quite arrogant, as saying to everybody else, right, you should talk, listen to me, I've got the truth. Um, and I think when Christians do come over that way, they're... They're, they're misunderstanding the Bible. So God, as Neil was very rightly saying, is the truth. Um, his truth is absolute. And Christians, if you like, are pointing, should be pointing away from ourselves towards him, saying, don't listen to me. I haven't, I'm not the sort of final word on truth. But look, look over there, there's God. He is. Um, and stand shoulder to shoulder with me and listen to what he says. Um and I think it's also probably worth pointing out that everybody has an angle on, on truth. You know, so Duncan yourself, you were saying, you know, I have my truth. And so it's, it's not that Christians are the only people in society saying we think we found the truth. And the, the question, therefore, is how does your version of truth, how does my version of truth treat people who don't have that truth, treat people on the, on the other side of the line? Uh, if, if the people on my side of the line are, are the ones who I think have the truth. And I think that the thing that Christianity offers to society there is to say that the Christians who have the truth don't have it because we're cleverer or because we're more moral or because we've lived a better life than other people. Uh, the only reason that we have the truth is that God has been gracious to us uh, in a way that we didn't deserve. And so Christians have no right at all to look down on people who don't have the Christian truth because they're not less intelligent, they're not necessarily less moral, they're not worse people. Um, and it's only through grace that Christians have the truth. Now, if you believe 
that the truth is, is gained, for example, through rationality, then it's very hard not to look down on people on the other side of, of the line because you are more rational than they are. And so I think Christianity provides a model of truth that I gives you no opportunity to look down on people. Yes, yeah, sorry. Duncan, what were you going to say? Um, just backtrack a little bit as, as what you, you said about 30 seconds ago uh, in regards to looking down at how other people think. Yep, so uh, you're wanting Chris to uh, to reflect on looking down on what other people think. And uh, that was an important Please. issue there around arrogance that you were talking about, Chris. I wonder if you've got a thought for Duncan here, but I know that for every Christian believer who's listening in, uh, interested in the way we actually conduct ourselves in a conversation about truth. Yeah, I think arrogance is a bit of a... A bit of an epidemic in society, isn't it? You hop on Twitter and everybody seems to be looking down on views that are not their own, usually on the other side of the political spectrum. And, and so I guess a question facing us all is how can you hold different views to other people without looking down on them? Um, and, and I think that Christianity has something to offer to the conversation there, because if you're a Christian the reason that you have the truth has nothing to do with you. Not because you're clever. It's not because you're moral. Uh, it's nothing to, to do with how good you are in any way. It's simply that God has been kind to you. God has been gracious. And therefore, if as a Christian, you look down in any way on people who don't have the truth, you're betraying the biblical witness. You're pretending that there's something good about you that means that you're worthy of the truth. And other people aren't. And that's not, that is not what the Bible says. And so Christianity gives you a model of being able to, to hold to a truth, to say there is actually a truth, and I found it, but that doesn't mean that I'm better than anyone else, and it doesn't mean that I can look down on anyone else. But again, you're using the word truth. It's, it's your truth, it's not the truth. Duncan, if I'll just chime in here, sometimes we talk about biblical truth. We reference Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. So as the Christian believer, we appreciate something special about truth. And that is that it comes from somewhere above what you or I might think about each other's truth. It comes from this uh, transcendence in who God is above who we are. And there's a certain sense in which I think that transcendence is the powerful thing that we can actually ascribe to because, as you say, Chris, it's not come from ourselves personally because uh, we're gracious recipients of that truth. Now, Chris, I'll give you the last word here. I, I think... Duncan is, is grappling with something that, that a lot of people grapple with, and it's a really important thing to, to, to weigh up. I, I, I think that it's impossible not to have an idea of truth, however. I, I think that, you know, Duncan, for example, you, you are, you're giving a take on ultimate reality. You're saying that, that no one should be able to say, I have the truth, which is a claim about the way things are, that is actually just as 
definite, just as dogmatic, if you like, as saying that, that Christians have the truth. It, it's still making a claim about the way things are that, that's bigger than any individual. Duncan, I want to thank you so much. What a great contribution by uh, just sharing your heart there. And I hope that's been a valuable response from our special guest, Christopher Watkin. Uh, Duncan in WA, I want to thank you so much for your call. And time really has run out and I feel like, boy, we we would love to talk to another hour. So we might have to make a time in the new year, Christopher. And if you're happy to come back and and be a part of another conversation where we can grapple with some of these things, uh, I would welcome that. And I'm sure listeners to our conversation today would welcome that too. Uh, as I uh, farewell you, let me just say your new book is coming out. It's called Biblical Critical Theory. And uh, given your academic position, uh, we'll think here that this is going to be a little bit of an academic read. So, But there are going to be a lot of listeners who are going to say, that's the sort of thing I want. I want something that's going to deal with uh, the questions that people have in a really powerful way. When is the actual launch date for your book, Chris? I think in Australia it's the 22nd of December. They're they're desperate to get them in the shops by Christmas. That's what I know. The book is called Biblical Critical Theory and uh, launched on the 22nd of December. You might be able to pre-order from whatever book seller that you like to use. There is also a website to draw attention to. It's called thinkingthroughthebible.com thinkingthroughthebible.com and it's at that website too you'll be able to get a message to our special guest today Associate Professor Christopher Watkin Christopher, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020 It's been a real joy Neil, thank you so much Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media To find out more about us go to vision.org.au